Welcome to the Journey to Epiphany podcast. I'm your host, Callie Swanland. Today, I'm so excited to welcome my friend and fellow priest, Liz Titchener. In the past, I've sometimes heard people sort of jockeying for who has the worst thing. <laughs> and now, and it's, I, I feel like it's totally the reverse now that no matter how hard someone has it, right now it's really easy to see someone on the front page or, you know, the top of your news or where, or even just, you know, in your community, your neighborhood, who has it worse. Liz lives out in California with her family and she is the writer of the newly released memoir, The Night Lake. A note about today's episode, we'll cover some hard topics like suicide and the death of Liz's baby Fritz in 2014. I am so delighted to have Liz on the Journey to Epiphany podcast. And Liz is joining me from the other coast, all the way in California. And Liz, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, uh, I wear various hats. I work as an Episcopal priest. I'm the rector of Church of the Resurrection in Pleasant Hill, which is well, right now, about a half hour uh, inland from San Francisco, um, there's not a whole lot of traffic right now. <laughs> um, I'm also a mother and um, and most recently a, a writer. I've just got a book out and so I'm exploring what that looks like to live in the world as well. Yay. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk about that book as well, because um, I have a copy and it's beautiful. Spoiler alert, everyone listening, it is beautiful and heartbreaking and wonderful. And um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more in, later in the episode. But um, Liz, thank you for being with us today. I, um, for everyone listening, I have known Liz for several years and Every conversation I've had with her has been what I consider wholehearted. Um, okay. she, she is a very authentic and vulnerable person. And um, if you've been following me, you know that those are things that I try to seek and model in this world. And Liz, we've, I, you know, I think we've um, found a lot of ways to to have those wholehearted conversations with one another throughout the mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And from afar, uh, kind of remarkably, I feel like most of the folks that I uh, engage with in that way are people that I've lived through a lot of, of times with, you know, in the flesh side by side. And we've only had a little bit of that time. And I feel like, well, actually I, I feel like it was you Callie who initially, um, decided and uh, proposed really that that was what we were going to do together, <laughs> that we were going to be that kind of friend and arrived uh, on my doorstep to do that together. And, um, and I've just been so grateful for both choosing to, to be that kind of friend together, to just say, here, here is what is actually live for me. Here is where I need a hand and dive in. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and what I think you're saying is that I, I invited myself to your house. I really did. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Which I, you know, I kind of wish people did more often. I mean, 
I fully felt like I had the space to say, ah, this does not make sense. And, um, and that was actually a gift to have you come and just uh, decide and arrive, or, or more specifically to be so clear that that was what we needed to be doing. That's where you needed to be right then was a, um, a courageous thing that I think people don't, even if we recognize that that's what we might need to do or where we might need to be with somebody, we don't often put ourselves out there and go after it that way. Um, so to me, it feels like that was uh, a launch pad for that, that gave permission to just do that, to just be that way together. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful too. I've been thinking a lot about friendship and mm. um, uh, I led in Advent, I led um, some women through a quiet day, a retreat. And we talked a lot about Mary and Elizabeth. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if um, Mary sort of showed up on Elizabeth's doorstep one day, but that's <laughs> kind of how I expect how I experience it in my mind is that yeah. um, these women might not have had time in the flesh with one another or much time in the flesh with one another before mm. this, but they shared this really vulnerable time with one another and they saw they saw in one another the divine spark. They, mm-hmm. um, when they encountered one another, Elizabeth immediately knew that Mary was pregnant with God's son. And how cool is that to have two people come together and see something divine in one mm-hmm. another? And, and I mean, beautiful and, and righteous in and of itself, but also I, I feel like it, you know, in, in so many other circumstances, what Mary would have been smart to expect was, would, would have been to be turned away for someone to say, wait, you're, you're pregnant and you've got this tall tale and you're not married. Like, I don't want, I don't want any part in this. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think even just sort of zero to you know neutral to being able to really recognize the divine in another is remarkable mm-hmm. but when the more or less sort of culturally expected response would have been to close the door and yeah. protect yourself from that from being involved in that i mean that is um remarkable to me it is remarkable. And I, I have a theory that um, in the world of friendships, people are expecting that door to be closed in their face. And so they don't mm-hmm. always, they don't always take that risk and say, um, it's it's like when you watch um, young children mm-hmm. and they, they don't mind sidling up to someone and saying, you want to be my friend? Uh it's so it's so sweet and endearing to watch them do that and um it's so hard for grown-ups to do the same and say hey you want to share my apple juice let's be friends (laughs) (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah well and especially when 
often as adults, it's, it's not apple juice. It's, you know, massive stress or a heartbreak or a super tough decision or, you know, inviting somebody to share in that with you. And hopefully there's, there's joy and adventure and hilarity and all that also. But, um, I think the ask is bigger often, at least it, it, it feels like it is in my experience in inviting people into my life and my story and, um, and to walk with me or to let me walk with them is often, um, a much bigger ask than when we were young. To quote St. Brene, Brene Brown, who Ooh, I, yes. <laughs> who I often, uh, draw upon, um, she says that vulnerability is the risk of emotional exposure. It's mm-hmm. emotional risk and exposure. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you're talking about. We we know that there's risk involved in sharing vulnerably, sharing deeply with another person. And so we sort of think through think that through in our heads and sometimes we decide you know, no, that, that could go poorly. And here's all the things that could go wrong with it. So I'm just, I'm just not going to share at all. Um, but we forget that, that with emotional risk, with any risk, um, can also come reward. And it's not just rejection that you might face if you're, um, open with someone else. You can also instead be rewarded and, um, I'm really grateful that my vulnerability with you has yielded an incredibly rewarding friendship and that you have been vulnerable in return. Hmm. And I, I think some of um, the the deeper in I get, so I, I realized recently uh, that St. Brene um, published <laughs> Daring Greatly I, I think it came out within less than a month, like a couple of weeks of my mom's death. My mom struggled with alcoholism for a long time. She died by suicide and it was awful. Um, and the next month, uh, this is the book that Brene Brown published and suddenly everyone was talking about. Um, and um, what I've come to see in, you know, in reading that and having a lot of people practice it and then trying to lead from that place, um, is that there's, I, I think there's, there's maybe actually as much risk in staving off that vulnerability mm-hmm. as there is in, in stepping into it and risking, risking rejection yeah. or risking people not getting it or, you know, them saying, the the exactly wrong thing that it just leaves you reeling or feeling terrible. Um, yeah. But, but there's such opportunity to, um, to find companionship, to find what you're called to next, how you're called to live with, you know, whatever heartbreaking thing it is in the vulnerability that, um, that sidestepping it, I, I just, I don't think it serves us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's so much, so much isolation that comes with not 
not connecting to one another in meaningful ways. And we don't connect with one another in meaningful ways for a myriad of reasons, but, Mm -hmm. um, things like, um, comparison and, uh, worrying about judgment from others, um, are, are toward the top of that list. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so you are deeply familiar with what happens when someone is isolated and cut off from, from others. And, um, it's, it's so heartbreaking to know or to think what, you know, what might have been different. Um, what might have been different if, if your mom had one of those Elizabeth and Mary Mm -hmm. friendships? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that. Um, and in particular, you know, recognize that she and I were cut from the same cloth in so many ways. You know, we would speak in unison and, um, even, even still, I mean, it's been many years now, but I'll see how my body moves. And for just the, the tiniest split second, I will, my, my mind's eye will see my mom before realizing that they're actually my hands, you know, with the shovel or the rolling pin or whatever, um, and in some ways that has been frightening for me, um, to recognize both how similar we were and also what, what an awful end it was to her life yeah. and, and wondering, you know, there, there are terrible statistics about, uh, how both addiction and suicide can be, uh, an inheritance and, yeah that has been really scary for me, something that I have had to wrestle and work with and do a lot of my own work uh, around. And one of the things that I have come back to again and again and again is recognizing um, with sort of a, a melancholy gratitude, I guess, or, or um, it's, it, it, it breaks my heart even as I am so grateful for it to, to see how much community and support and connection I have in my life that she didn't. And, and just what a tremendous difference it makes that it completely changes uh, or it can, it it doesn't necessarily, but it can change dramatically the course of one's life and what we're able to uh, weather and survive and not just survive, but thrive through and beyond that, uh, that it is that companionship. It's that having, uh, an Elizabeth or having, uh, a, a collection of Elizabeths. I feel like I've got this, uh, this amazing, like sort of collect the whole set, <laughs> that, you know, is just, uh, almost an embarrassment of riches, but it's, it's, it's not an embarrassment. It's this, like that, yeah. that is the abundance. That is the kingdom of God that yes. uh, you've got an Elizabeth in every time zone. And <laughs> So you're going to be okay. I love that. An abundance of Elizabeth's, um, (laughs) an abundance of, I just, again, with this, with Mary and Elizabeth, I I think of this uh, young, scared woman and this older, tired woman and what they could have brought to one another. What, what, um, what a gift it was to Elizabeth to have someone come and tend to her when she was probably used to tending to others all her life. And what a gift it was from Barry to not be judged and to maybe sit at the feet of this woman as she, you know, um, 
massaged them or tended to um to them she also probably sat at the feet and um and learned from this woman's wisdom and that that word that you just used abundance um that comes to play because when we live in a place of scarcity when we think there's not enough to go around um we don't take the time to do things like that or we don't think that um that someone could have enough um energy to spend on us or mm-hmm. um we just get into that mindset that there's just not enough and so to get into a place of um of abundance is a beautiful a beautiful and hard task yeah well and i think some of it too is um I mean, I think this has been a challenge for many, maybe most of us for a long time, but I see it playing out in a really particular shape right now as as COVID is just rampant and all the, the terrible implications of that. Um, I, you know, I think many people have always had a hard time believing that there would be enough support enough compassion to really see them through whatever it is that they're trying to uh, yeah. to live through but especially now i i hear again and again um this this comparative grief situation mm. where instead of trying to you know in the past i've sometimes heard people sort of jockeying for who has the worse thing yeah <laughs> and yeah that, and it's I, I feel like it's totally the reverse now that no matter how hard someone has it, right now it's really easy to see someone on the front page or you know the top of your news or where or even just you know in your community, your neighborhood, who has it worse? Who yes. you know they uh, they've lost their job and you're just struggling at yours, or you know you have lingering uh, symptoms that that you can't kick from having COVID, but at least you're alive or at least you didn't lose. It's just this, at least I didn't, it could be worse. Yeah. And on the one hand, yeah, sure. That's, that's true. It could be worse, but I think the consequence of that is so many people having a really hard time sitting in how hard it is right mm-hmm. now, how mm-hmm. exhausted they are, how impossible what is being asked of them is and how much, support they need even if everybody is seemingly too uh, you know spread too thin to offer it that doesn't you know it, it can be hard to name how much help you need when it seems like everybody needs it and nobody has any to spare and and yet i think we do um i i think we do have elizabeths in every corner but we're not going to hear from them if we don't show up albeit virtually, you know, in a text or a Zoom or whatever, to say, here I am. Here's where we are. Yes. Yes. And I preach all of that. Preach, preach, preach. (laughs) Uh It's still really hard to live it, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It is so hard to live it. And I get caught up in it all the time. And I have been regularly in this season um, whenever I'm asked to lead a retreat or a webinar, I've regularly been talking about comparison because mm. we're we're creatures that um, 
we're prone toward comparison anyway. But um, usually, usually we have some sort of reality check. So usually I might see someone um, with perfect hair and a face full of makeup um, on their Instagram story. And then I run into them at the corner market and I say, oh, they also wake up and get out of bed <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> looking, looking human, looking, you know, still radiant and beautiful, but um, without, without all of those, um, without the makeup and the perfect hair. And that helps me feel like I can connect with them a little bit more, or I may see someone listing out the accomplishments of their children and think, oh, they've got these perfect, perfect little children when I see them on Facebook, but then I, you know, run into them and they, the children are climbing the walls and the mom Mm -hmm. is talking to them through gritted teeth. And I'm like, Uh okay. So, so there's, there are other humans out there. They're not just all automated, um, social media, perfect models. No filter. Um, Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And we don't have that other reality check. We're just Mm -hmm. seeing one another's curated social media lives and it is it is lending itself to further and further comparison and further and further isolation and I think it's keeping people like you said keeping people from reaching out to one another because they think oh well that person's that person's either got it worse and I can't burden them right now or um, that person is is doing just fine and they won't understand Everyone thinks I have the honor of of talking to people behind the curtain. You know, I, I get to hear people's stories and I hear over and over again that people's relationships are taking a wear and tear during this time, but no one's talking about that publicly. That's not something that you don't people say. That. Let me tell yeah. you about the, the, the argument I had with my partner for the umpteenth time. <laughs> it's the yeah. same thing. And here we go again. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And um, so I'm just out there sort of over and over on repeat trying to normalize it for people. Yes. Yes. You're in a fight with your partner. Yes. You're yelling at your children. Yes. You're resentful of your boss. Yes. You're um, crying into your cereal at 9 PM. Like, yes, these are happening to many of us and um, you're not alone in that. Yeah. 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 Well, since um, since there's no visual here, let me let me tell you. <laughs> In one corner of this room, there is a box of uh, dog treats and toys that I bought in desperation um, <laughs> to try to help our puppy, our pandemic puppy, you know, not destroy everything. And <laughs> then the entire couch is covered in laundry, some of which has been there long enough that it's just like completely. <laughs> you might as well put it back in again. And then on top of one of the desks is a mattress pad and blanket and like all kinds of books and crap. But the mattress pad is there because the puppy peed on it. Uh, just, just falling piles of work and books and papers and oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. But if we were, if we were to 
take a photo for this podcast, we would find the clearest corner <laughs> of our uh-huh. of our room, and we would we would yeah, show my, off. My chair would like you know uh, cover all of that, and you would see a lovely plant and a beautiful outdoor scene. <laughs> and that's not real at all. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, I, again, I appreciate that you are always willing to, um, to pull back the curtain a little bit and be vulnerable with me. And I, you know, I've been thinking, um, so this, this podcast is called journey to epiphany because I think of the journey of the magi and I think Mm -hmm. of, um, sort of my, my tagline for, um, this, virtual space I've created, um, the Mm -hmm. epiphany space is follow your dreams, share your gifts, journey together. And so epiphany is a a really important feast to me. And, um, I just, I love the idea of this guiding star, but as you mentioned earlier, you're no stranger to grief. And, um, I know that you have a particular grief that, uh, was, born around epiphany tide. And Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you would be willing to share that with us. Yeah. So, so this is all um, chronicled in this new book, the night lake. And um, so I shared just a a snippet earlier about my mom, Um, but uh, seven years ago now, um, we were living at Lake Tahoe. I was uh, splitting my time between a, a camp there right on the shores and a parish down in Reno. Um, my husband was working at the camp as well. We had a, a two and change year old daughter and we had just uh, welcomed a, a new baby boy into uh, our lives. He was huge and born at home with midwives. And it was this uh, amazing. He was born on the first Sunday of Advent and um, and was just, and he was nine and a half pounds, uh, a lot of baby. <laughs> and just a few days after Advent, when he was 40 days old, he died totally suddenly and totally unexpectedly. He'd been kind of a little bit out of sorts. He'd seemed a little sick enough that I'd take him to urgent care that afternoon. And the doctor said he was fine. Um, he was not concerned. And I put him to bed. It took a long time that evening. It's just crying and crying and um, finally fell asleep. And a little while later, before I had gone to, gone to sleep, I just sensed he was there next to me. I just sensed that he was not breathing. And um, it was, it, it was just completely unbelievable. You know, you, um, or I, I don't know about you listening. I, I had never really considered in any real way that that was something that might happen to me, that my, my baby might just die. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were young, we were healthy, we'd <laughs> done all the, um, you know, supposedly right and safe things. And then suddenly we had a dead baby and, um, we found out much later that, uh, it was essentially, a UTI that jumped into his blood and he was septic and in little, little babies, they don't show symptoms the same, but didn't have a fever, none of it. They just, they just couldn't tell. Yeah. And, um, so this was, um, not quite a year and a half after my mom had died 
and I had been ordained a priest in between those two deaths. Um, and I just, the shape of my schooling, I had done some extra time, uh, getting another degree. So I'd only been really working as a priest, uh, for a couple of months at this point when he died. And so the aftermath of that time was, um, it felt like I was learning very slowly how to live again with this um, this grief that just flattened me. Um, and also learning how to be a priest, uh, you know, seminary is great and all, but so much of it you learn by doing. Absolutely. Uh, and so I was learning how to do that. But while I was still learning who, who I was, who I was going to be in this new shape, um, this new identity that I had never, certainly never wanted, but also never, anticipated. Um, and so to be honest, I, I don't think I gave epiphany any thought at all. Um, not yep. even a tiny bit. <laughs> it was like really not on my radar. No. Um, and, um, as I have thought about it more in more recent years, I have, um, I've come to see some, um, some really, they feel like really heartening um, touch points or cairns, you know, it's this, the, the rocks that get piled along the way to let you know that you're, you're yes. still on the path. Um, and I, I wonder about those magi, how, I mean, they saw something that pulled them from their homes and everything they knew. And, but I wonder if, how much they had, did they know where they were going? They have any idea what the terrain was going to look like or what was going to be asked of them or called forth from them. Um, I, I, I kind of imagine that a lot of it was a surprise and terrifying. You know, we get these great songs now that, um, well, maybe with almost all our sacred stories that sort of tie them up in these jolly bows or these lovely bows and skip over the terror and the not knowing and the, um, the, the necessity of it being a thing of faith of, which is to say trust because you, you simply cannot know what it's going to, what, what it's going to be, how it's going to go. And I think that has been so much my experience of, um, of living in and through and in some ways beyond this grief. I mean, it never, it never finishes. It will never be done. It still sometimes totally wrecks me, but, um, but I'm glad to be living and I love my life and, um, and I'm okay, I guess I, I would say in a, in a way that, um, would be surprising to myself mm. seven years ago. Mm. And I think some, uh, so I, I think the, the spark that, um, that, that pulled me to, to start plodding along and it really felt like plodding for a long time, plodding in the dark and without a map and um, sometimes with often with some really incredible companions who would walk with me for a time 
um, but not knowing where it was leading or how long I would be walking, uh, any of that. Um, there was somewhere in there this light that, uh, or a glimpse, a glimmer that was hard to see a lot of days that, that there could still be life, that, um, that there could be resurrection to be tapped into and lived now, you know, on this side of the veil, not just in the fullness of time. Um, that I, I, I knew people who I respected and trusted who were still believing that and praying that on my behalf, even when I couldn't, um, when I did not have those words. And that made me want to, um, to keep walking in those nights. Wow. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that story. I know that it's one you've had much time to reflect on and now you've vulnerably put it out for the whole world to, to read and know, um, which, oh gosh, I don't know. Was that, was that a, um, its own re-grief or was it a bit of healing or how, how would you describe that, that process of telling that story for the world? Yes. All of that. <laughs> so um, so in, in a lot of ways it was incredibly healing to spend all that time writing it down and wrestling the narrative and trying to understand where I had been and where I was and maybe where I was headed um, such that by the time I finished uh, the first draft of the manuscript, um, I, I had this deep sense that if no one else ever read it, it would have been worth it. It would have been enough because it changed mm. me to write it. It changed how I could live and how I could live this story and hold this story and share it out um, was very palpably different on the other side. Of writing it. I wasn't, uh, it still broke my heart, but I wasn't terrified of it anymore in the wow. way that I had been. And yeah, it is, it feels incredibly vulnerable to put it out into the world so widely. It's, um, it's raw and it's, um, it's, it's like sort of mailing my whole heart out across the land uh, and not knowing how it will be received, not knowing um, what people will do with that, what they will make of it. And, yeah. and that's scary for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of, uh, some of how I was able to, um, sort of convince myself to write it was by again and again and again, giving myself the assurance that I didn't actually, I didn't have to show this to anybody. I would write it down and decide later <laughs> if it would right. go to anybody. And, you know, I, I Early on, like I hadn't signed any deal, I hadn't pitched it. I was just writing, and I kept doing that. I kept saying, "Okay, like here's another draft. I don't have to show this to anybody. I don't have to send this anywhere." And then, um, in the end, it sort of snowballed really quickly, um, and I, I, I let somebody read it who I thought, you know at the outset was just going to give me some ideas on where I might send it and where I, you know, if he knew of a good agent or the right fit of a publishing house. 
and then that felt like okay I can do this and and then in the end he um he read it and said well um I think that I I want to publish this <laughs> he's a publisher and so it just like all of a sudden then it had happened and I hadn't even realized that I'd pitched it and signed a contract and so um in some ways it was really helpful to have those different decision points spread out um and now it's too late, I, you know, like the train has left the station and here we go. And I'm grateful for that because I think it would be hard to gather the courage yeah. uh, all at once to do it. Um, and you, oh my gosh, you speak of so many metaphors for journey, which again, is what I think of when I think of the epiphany and um, by all accounts from what we understand, this is not like a 12 day journey Jesus is born and <laughs> they were there. This was like a three year toddler. Yeah. Right. He's like walking. He knows how yep. to light a fire to light the incense, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is a journey and this whole process has been a journey for you. And one of the things that I've learned about journeys in my own grief and big things that I've gone through in the last several years is that we don't always know the destination when we start the journey. We don't often know the destination when we start the journey and that sometimes we just have to take that step. And this was just, this story was in you and you took that next step and then you took one more and then you took a few more after that. And that, that honors, um, that honors yourself, that honors your son, that honors the divine, spark within you. And that's, it's a really beautiful way to conceive of journey. And I also heard as you were talking about your own time of grief around the feast of the epiphany and did they, did they line up? Did they relate? Um, I, I remembered that you're right. The songs that we hear about, um, the magi or the wise men are kind of cutesy and fun. And they, in their dream, they were born to go home a different way. They probably never, ever saw their homes or their family ever again. And so their journey of wonder was also probably a journey of grief. Yeah, that there was loss tied up with that every yeah. bit through and through. And sacrifice. Absolutely. Yeah. What they Absolutely. gave up to do that. Oh, we, we always go deep together, Liz. This is, <laughs> this is wonderful and beautiful. And I have a copy of your book and I, I recommend it uh, to everyone. It is um, in the word that I believe I first heard from Glennon Doyle is brutal. Mm, it is. Thank you. Brutal and beautiful all at once. And, um, I'm grateful that you did share this story with the world. I, um, it's a journey that I would never want you or anyone I know to have gone on. And because it is your journey, um, I'm glad that you share it with others. Cause I know that there are others listening who have had similar journeys of, um, complete and utter grief and loss and heartbreak. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad to be on it with you. Well, I am. I'm so grateful for you being here, um, Liz. I wonder if there's anything else you want to share with us. I think 
what feels live for me right now is um, is just offering the the hope uh, as I see it that all these things that we think or are told are too much the the too much parts of our lives whatever shape that um, that takes for you that I, I really think there are spaces this this epiphany space, the way we create it one with another, um, mm-hmm. where, where we can be real and, um, and navigate it together that, yeah, there probably are people or places for whom bringing everything is, is going to be too much. It's not going to go well. Um, yeah. but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't and that they aren't there. And that if we're having a hard time finding them, we can create them. We can, mm-hmm. Um, we can forge them together and it's, it's a tall order to trust that. And um, in, in some ways I feel like I sometimes occupy the, the, the like role of poster child for too much. Like, nobody likes mm-hmm. to talk about suicide and nobody likes to talk about dead babies, right? Like these are both way too much. Right. <laughs> and, and yet again and again and again, people have been willing to join their hearts to me here and see me through uh, and then let me hold their hearts also yes. when, when the tides turn. And it's such a gift. Uh, I, I, like you say, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. These are terrible clubs to belong to. And, mm. and it all comes for us in one way or another is it, it is the shape of life is, is loving till it hurts, uh, letting it hurt because we love so much. And even, even now, especially now we don't have to do that alone. We, we get to claim and create and live in these spaces together. Well, here's to holding one another, to walking with one another, to journeying this journey of wonder and heartache and joy and grief and everything in between. Um, I'm glad to be on this journey with you. Thank you, Callie. Me too. A big thanks to Liz for joining me for this wholehearted conversation. Her newly released book, The Night Lake, is available everywhere. You can follow Liz online at revliztichner.com. That's R-E-V-L-I-Z-T-I-C-H-E-N-O-R.com. A special thanks to Episcopal Church Foundation's Fellowship Partners Program, my favorite podcast engineer, Jeremy Tackett, and everyone out there seeking their spark. Follow me on social media at Callie Swanland or reach out through CallieSwanland.com to learn more about finding your spark 